Good morning, Grace. Today we'll continue our Follow the Leader series as we work our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Our text for today is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 17. I invite you to turn there as we read from Scripture this morning. Church, hear the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Amen. So how are we doing? Awesome. It's good to see you guys. Glad that uh, 300 of you are happy to be here. Uh, so, hey, uh, really excited to be able to teach what we're doing uh, right now. Let me, uh, let me just kind of lay out where we are. Uh, we're going into 1 Samuel 7, as we just read. Last week, I challenged you at the uh, end of the message. We talked about the fact that as we looked through Hebrews 10, we talked about the law was a shadow of things to come, right? The law was a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. And the law was fairly ineffective in ridding Old Testament believers of their shame and their guilt. Remember, we talked about the fact that what the law does every time you sacrifice an animal is that it atones for sin, right? It makes you at one with God. Atonement 
at tonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, at one-ment with God. You are at one-ment with God. Every time you see the word atonement, that's what it means. It puts you back to a good place with God. But it doesn't put you back to a good place with yourself as we look back at the, uh, at the text from Hebrews 10. And one of the things that it said was that it never, it never erases your consciousness of sin. It never erases that sense of sinfulness that you carry with you. And we talked about the fact that when you really grab the gospel, that quorum Deo, before the face of God, you are absolutely seen as perfect. That God looks at you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and says, my daughter is 100% pure. My son is 100% pure. But quorum omnibus, before the people, before us, before men, uh, one of the things that we realize is that we're not perfect, that we are still struggling and that we're still trying to be perfected and we are still being sanctified. The word sanctified means we're growing in spiritual life. And so this is a process that we're going to be involved in for the rest of our lives. We're doing great at it at times. We're doing terrible at it at other times. But when, I, when we left last week, I challenged you and said, leave it here. Because if you truly get the gospel, the only one who can judge you is God. And because he has already judged Jesus in your place, there is nobody judging you anymore. But we have a tendency to carry around that kind of guilt and that kind of shame, and it just undoes our life. So one of the things that we need to do in the process is where Samuel comes in chapter 7, and that is to the place of repentance. This sermon is going to be a little bit less funny. It's going to be a lot more serious. And then I'm going to call us to repentance at the very end of the service. Last service we had an overwhelming response. And I put that in front of you to say, we built grace to be a church where, because I'm going to ask you to publicly stand. And that's hard and scary. By the way, if you're brand new here today, uh, just stay seated. Don't worry about it. Unless the spirit moves you and you do what we want to. But we didn't invite you here for that. Here's the thing. Repentance is the great gift of the church. It's the, it's, it is the pathway, the channel by which God makes us right with him once again. And by the way, if you're, if you're just checking out religion right now, because we know that there's a lot of people that are in this church that are kind of just, you know, I'm just checking out Jesus. I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not sure where I am on all that. And we welcome that and we love that. So you're here. But I want you to understand the reason why we do things like this every once in a while, the reason why we challenge straightforward like that is because it is the solution to the thing that the world says that they don't like about the church, and that is hypocrisy. What confession does is it names our problem. What, what repentance does is it changes the problem. And so what we want to do is we want to, and here's a very basic definition of repentance. If, and this is our mission statement here at the church, if our mission statement is to help people take their next step toward Christ, and as we're taking next steps toward Christ, every once in a while, we get off track and we start looking in a different direction and we start going backwards, right? And we start, and, we, and you've done this, I've done this, uh, we, we might even be doing it right now. We just get confused, we start walking the other direction and we start thinking to ourselves, all right, well, uh, I'm gonna go in a new direction. If this, is, if this way is the, taking my next step toward Christ, I start going in a different direction away from him. And every step I take in my life away from him pulls me away from him and my relationship with other people. Repentance puts me back on the path so I can continue to take steps toward Jesus. So when we do these kinds of things, when we are challenged, when the Spirit moves in us to say publicly, yeah, I got some things I need to deal with, it's because what we're saying is we need it. A hypocrite 
is the person who pretends to be one way on the inside and is another way on the outside. We're simply saying as Christians, we're in desperate need of Jesus. We're in desperate need of the goodness that he provides for our lives because we don't provide it because we are morally disabled inside. And all you have to do, and if you don't take me for face value for that, all you have to do is do an experiment on your own time and your own way. Choose one single virtue, any of them, and try to live it perfectly. What you'll find is you're going to do it for a while, then you're going to fall out of it. Why? Because you are morally disabled. 1 Samuel 7, let's dive into it a little deeper. We'll read a few verses here, and then uh, let me give you some more background. 1 Samuel 7, and the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All right, let's talk about this. Between chapter 6, where we were last week, and chapter 7, where we are now, 20 years has elapsed. So there's a big period of time. Samuel has moved from being this 13, 14-year-old boy to now being somewhere in his you know, mid-30s, early to mid-30s. Now, as we kind of think this through, I just want you, to, I want you to remember kind of where we were last week. We have been talking about this very simple fact that the Israelites have gone to war with the Philistines over and over and over again. And these first two times they go to war, they believe that just because they have the Ark of the Covenant, this magic box in which God lives, they somehow believe that the magic box is going to deliver them from their troubles. So they bring it out on the battlefield, they lose 4,000 men. Uh, they, they lose 30,000 men in the next skirmish as well. What ends up happening is that this puts a profound sense of fear and lament inside the hearts of Israel. Their, their, their uh, cities have been burned down. They're, they're in ruins. Uh, the people, there's a, national, uh, there's a nationalistic malaise, a depression that's fallen all over the nation of Israel. And so when the scriptures tell us that uh, the all of the house lamented uh, after the Lord, it basically means that they have nothing, nothing's going right in their world. They're looking at their world, and I don't know what your plans are for your life, but this would be as if every plan that you had for your life was frustrated. And in the frustration of those plans, where's God? He's nowhere to be found, it seems. They're on the outside of a relationship with him right now. So what was, what was Samuel doing during those 20 years? The Bible doesn't actually tell us, but uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's a theologian, he surmises that here's what he's doing. What he's doing at the very end of the text is probably what he was doing for the first 20 years, and that is he's going from town to town to town. You see, Samuel's the last judge of the Old Testament, and he's the first prophet of the, New, of the Old Testament. And so he's going from village to village to village, and he is proclaiming repentance. He is proclaiming, the, the, if, if you want to call it the pre-gospel, the gospel of the law, right, and the Old Testament. And now we find ourselves at the place where he is going to judge Israel itself. Verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, this is amazing, if you're returning, if you are returning to the Lord, return with all your heart. And then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So right here, just in, in, this, in this one verse, we have an entire pattern for repentance. I just want you to kind of see it. The first thing I want you to see is that he says, when you serve, serve him only. Two weeks ago, we talked about the reason for that. Remember, we said that exclusivity 
it's not a bad thing. Exclusivity is the beauty of love. Exclusivity is the beauty of love. That every single time, two people who have covenanted together to say, I love you and you love me, and we're going to be with each other forever and ever and ever. When we've done that and there's been a third person who's been introduced, that always causes complications. That always causes fear. It always causes worry. It just, it wreaks havoc on a relationship. And every single time in the Old Testament, when God talks about a people who are far from him, he describes them as an adulterous nation. And the idea of adultery, this idea that, that, that there is some special kind of relationship that you and I have with Jesus, that they had with Yahweh in the Old Testament, that God somehow, in some very unique, interesting, unlike any other category kind of way, chose you and said, I want a relationship with you that's exclusive. I don't want... Uh, I don't want anything else on the shelf next to me. I love you with all my heart. And, and when you put something next to me, it gets in between us. And I don't want anything in between us. And so when Samuel comes to talk to the house of Israel, he says, if you're returning with all your heart, then put away foreign gods. I love this because he really has a great little moment of psychology right here because he understands people. And here's what he says. He looks at the people. They're all crying out, right? They're lamenting. They're saddened. But he looks at the sadness and the lamenting of the people and he doesn't automatically go, hey, look, they're repenting. He looks at the sadness and the lamenting of the people and he says, hey, look, they're experiencing bad consequences for the choices that they've made. But there's a huge difference between having a heart that's just being poured out for the Lord and having a heart that's upset because of the bad circumstances in which we're living. Those are two very, very different things. Now you can be you, you can lament over your circumstances. You could even come with your circumstances lamenting, and that could lead to repentance. But at the end of the day, repentance is not about having a heart where you're going to cry over every mistake that you've made. In fact, it was Martin Luther in his uh, commentary on Galatians, which is just an incredible book. I'd highly recommend it. You'll understand grace in a way that you never had before. But Luther, in the commentary in Galatians, says that emotion is not a preconsideration for repentance. Because repentance, remember, if I'm going this way in my life and I'm walking away from God, I'm taking steps away from him, the only way for me to fix it is to stop and then turn and start heading in another direction. That doesn't mean I have to emotionally be there. People ask me all the time, like, I just, Mike, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I want to repent. I don't feel like I need to do this, but I know in my head I do then I say, start with what's in your head. Start not with what's in your heart, but start with what's in your head. If you know the Bible says that you need to repent of something in your life and you're choosing not to, it's going to harm your life because it hardens the heart. It makes you less open and less free. It makes you more fearful and more worried. Look at what it says. He says, put away your foreign gods and the Ashtoreth. What is the Ashtoreth? So in uh, Israel, there are these um, Canaanite deities and they're kind of local Israelite deities. One is called Ashtoreth. It's a female deity. And the other is called Baal or Baal, right? But that's annoying to say, so we're just going to call it Baal, all right? And since he doesn't actually exist, he won't be offended, all right? So Baal is a Canaanite deity, but he's a deity that the Israelites had around, and, and it was kind of an option. But I love how we've just become so much more advanced than these people who lived 3,100 years ago that we don't even struggle with the same kind of things that they struggle with. Like, for example, uh, Baal was the god of uh, money and power. He was the god of the crops and produce. He was the one who basically said, if you follow me, all will go right in your life. In other words, if you tithe a certain amount of money, you're guaranteed to get another amount of money back. You know, that kind of thing, right? So, we, unfortunately, we're beyond all that today. Um, 
but, but also Ashtoreth, right? And so what we're looking at right here is the Iron Age, and we're also looking at the Bronze Age and periods of history. So in the Iron Age and Bronze Age, when this is happening, actually, there are all of these uh, geysers the same no matter where. Just ridiculous. So, so in, in, in Palestine, uh, there are all of these uh, um, carvings, wood, wooden carvings of naked women like all over the place, right? I mean, there's just hundreds of them, like, for, like they're 3,000 years old. Here's a naked 3,000-year-old woman, right? And Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility and sex and love. And so fortunately, we're all beyond all those issues today, and nudity is not a problem for us anymore, uh, looking at things on the um, screen. Um, so that's, I'm glad we're all beyond that. But, but here, what, we, what, we, what we're looking at basically is that God's saying, all right, you've got these things in your life, and these things in your life are separating you from me because, you know, you can go back to the Old Testament. It says... Um, your, he says, your sins have hidden his face from you that he cannot even hear you. See, every time we sin, every time we make a conscious choice to rebel against God, what it does is it distance us, distances us from him. And it prevents not really him from hearing us, but it prevents us from caring for him. And what sin does is it anesthetizes our moral responses. Sin anesthetizes our moral responses. So everything just seems a little lighter and cooler and easier and, and breezier, but at the end of the day, God just continues to get further and further away as we walk down a road of anesthetizing ourselves out of our very existence. It's powerful. But look at the passage again. He says, if you're returning to the Lord, return with all your heart. I love that. See, inward repentance is always followed by outward obedience. Inward repentance is always followed by outward obedience. So look at it again. With all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. So if you're going to, if you're going to change, if you're going to repent, have an inward repentance, but that inward repentance is going to show up outwardly somehow in some way. See, when you guys, when you guys bow your heads, for example, when you're confessing your sins, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, you bow your heads, you look pious, it's wonderful, it's great. But you could be in there like, all right, um, milk, sugar, get the kids, you know. I don't know what you, you could be doing that. So what does he do here? He says, hey, listen, Israel, repent and do it with all your heart. Turn from your wickedness and do it with every bit of who you are. And then you know what I want you to do? I want you to show me how you're doing that by getting rid of all the gods that you've placed next to me. He continues on. And then it says this. Look, if you repent, I love this. If you get the asterisk from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You get it, right? So if we are in repentance and we turn to the Lord, he delivers. Some of us are stuck right now spiritually because we have something in our heart that's just lodged there. In the New Testament, uh, it's called a foothold, right? And so this foothold is, a, is, like a, is like a rampart. It's a thing where Satan gains a, a foothold in our heart, and we just, we've held on to the sin over and over and over and over and over again. It's a sin that maybe somebody else did to us. It's a sin that we do. It's a repetitive thing that we struggle with over and over and over and over again. But it says that God will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. What does that mean? Well, the Philistines were the primary enemy of Israel, and that was what Israel was afraid of. What are you afraid of? What is your Philistine? I can't tell you because I can't look in your heads. But you know what it is. Your Philistine is the thing that you're just always fearful about. 
You're fearful it's not going to come true, or you're fearful it's going to come true. You're fearful if you don't get it, your life's never going to be what you wanted it to be. What is your Philistine? Samuel is asking Israel, put it on the altar. Whatever's next to me, whatever's next to God, just push it off the shelf and prioritize a life of repentance, of turning away. And again, for us as the church, this is the great and beautiful gift we have. People who don't follow Jesus don't have an opportunity to repent. They can be sorrowful. They can be bummed. But they don't have the the, the true uh, possibility of being cleansed apart from Jesus Christ. Look at the text again. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth. In other words, they did. They, they said, I'm, we're not going to follow these anymore. And they served the Lord only. That's an example of repentance. That's what repentance looks like. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve him only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So what is Mizpah? In, uh, what is it? Judges chapter 20, verse 1. Judges chapter 20, verse 1. God gathers together the people of Israel. This is, this is dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of years ago. But he gathers them together to a place called Mizpah. And the place of Mizpah is a place where Israel gathered together to repent. So what he's doing is he is going back to the place where their shame was brought and the shame was released. Years ago, I was 17 years old, 18 years old, right around. It's all blurry because I drank a lot. Uh, it's all <laughs> 17, 18 years old. Wasn't, I became a Christian right around then. And uh, I had a weird moment. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it. I, God, I know God was at work, and I can look back now with hindsight and see what God was doing. I don't know that I could put into words the words that I'm using right now. But one day, um, my buddies and I were out just goofing off in our cars and racing around and doing stuff. And, and uh, I felt like th- this really strong impulse to go back to a place in my life, like physically back to a place in my life where something horrible had happened in my life. And uh, I went there, I got out of the car, sat down on the ground. It's a place in, in Tuscola. And uh, I felt like the Lord, and I, and I have those words now, but I didn't have them then. I felt like the Lord said, you know the thing that happened here? And it's been a thing that's been in my life forever. So you know the thing that happened here? I'm going to deliver you from this. Your past, Mike, will not be the same as your future. He took me to Mizpah and said, your past will not be your future. And some of you guys need to go back to Mizpah. You need to go back to the place in your head where you made a promise, you made a vow, you made some kind of thing that said, this will never happen to me again. And you altered your life because of that. God takes us back to places like that to tell us it's not going to be like that forever. And I believe that every once in a while, things just lodge in our hearts. 
something that someone else has done to us, a sin, wickedness. You guys can imagine. Something that we did that really just disappointed ourselves or disappointed everyone around us. And you're either going to spend time in, in that place and confess it and repent of it and turn from it or you're going to keep revisiting that place over and over and over again. And Samuel is bringing the people to Mizpah because he wants them to be released. He wants them to repent as they did in the book of Judges so that they would no longer have to stay there anymore. So they gathered at Mizpah. They drew water. They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. What does that even mean? They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. That's a strange thing. So water in the Bible is constantly a symbol of God's purifying, right? And so um, Samuel gathers the entire church, the assembly, right? He didn't have a Zephyr Hills bottle of water. But nonetheless, he gathered the, the people of Israel together. And what he was doing was just before them, he had like a, a big giant bowl and he was pouring into another big giant bowl. And he took the, the bowl before Israel and he looked at them and the idea behind it was that we are, if we could as a nation shed this many tears, we would shed this many tears for our sin. And he poured out that water before the people of Israel. And the people of Israel just collectively, you know, as you can imagine, just kind of fell apart. As if they, if, as if they could take all their tears and pour it into the place where they would gather and be held and contained and blessed by God himself. And they prayed and they fasted because nothing else mattered in that moment. It would be them and their God, them and their sin, and them leaving it behind. And their definition is, so they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, they fasted on that day, and they said, we have sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against the Lord. There's probably no better summary of what it means to walk in repentance of God. It's not a bunch of emotion. It can be filled with tears. But at the end of the day, it is a statement about who we are. It's an ontological reality. I am a sinner who has disappointed God. We have sinned against the Lord. It's amazing because I look in the scriptures and I, I, I don't really understand. I mean, I, I get that because I've sinned against the Lord for sure. But sometimes the, phrase, the phrasing of that is a little weird for me. Um, and I really started researching it because I'm like, this is just a little odd. And if you go back to one of God's great kings, we're going to actually, on fall kickoff, we're going to be introduced at fall kickoff when we start in uh, August. Uh, we're going to be, uh, um, we're gonna be looking at the life of David and his leadership. But David has this moment with God that's transformative. In fact, it impacts not only him, but his grandchildren. 
Uh, it, 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 he loses the kingdom two generations later. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam and Jeroboam fight over the kingdom, and it's kind of destroyed in the, in the whole process. It all comes to this one moment with him. And David is out on the top of his, his house one day, and he's looking down, and he sees this really beautiful woman, and she's naked, and she's bathing. And instead of going, oh, my gosh, I, I looked at her, and, and then just kind of going away, he actually plots to meet her. He meets her. He finds out she's married. He finds out then that she is the... the she is married to uh, somebody in his military. And so he takes this guy, his name's Uriah. He's a Hittite and he loves God and he loves David. And uh, he's, a faithful, he's a faithful guy in the army. And he says, to, he says to Uriah and he says to his leaders, he says, Uriah, go on the battlefield. And then he says to his leaders, hey, go with him and put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest. And when the battle is the fiercest and everything is going like crazy, I want you guys just to pull back from him and let him fight. And so you get this incredible image of just Uriah the Hittite, and he's fighting for the, for the sake of Israel and for the sake of Yahweh, for the sake of David, because he knows David to be a righteous and virtuous man. And he's just swinging away and swinging away, and they're stabbing him, and they're punching him, and he's just falling apart. There's no one around. He's just completely obliterated, completely obliterated. And when Samuel comes to him and says, David, what did you do? His response is, his response is, I've sinned against the Lord. And when I first heard that, I thought, yeah, but what about Uriah? But the reality is, every time we sin against one another, we've sinned against the Lord. Because I am the Lord's. She is the Lord's. They are the Lord's. And so David got it right. He said, oh, I've done this terrible thing. I have sinned against David. I've sinned against Uriah. I've sinned against Bathsheba. But at the end of the day, I've sinned against the Lord. At the end of the day, all of our sins basically are boiled down to just one sin, no matter what they are. And I know that you feel like your sins are really unique and special and different. They give you different allowances and they cause you different pains. But the reality is that you boil them all down, no matter what they are, they are a sin against the holiness of a perfect God. And this perfect and holy God is not coming down from heaven to say, I'm going to destroy you because you're so wicked and bad. He says this good and holy God comes down in the form of a servant and lays his life down for you. We get the picture of this foreshadowed in the text right now. It says, He drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day. And there they said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Well, sure. Right? Because 34,000 people have died. They've, been, they've had their butts handed to, they've, they've had their assets handed to them over and over and over again. And again, they're about to have it happen to them. Or at least they think. See, one of the things about Israel right now is that they don't really, all of their emotions are wrong. The first time they proudly marched in without the ark, thinking that God was going to save them. They believed with all their heart. If you remember the passage, they were thumping their chests, chapter four. They were thumping their chests, so ready to go. We're here, we're Israel. They're pounding drums. And they were demolished. Now, now they've repented before a holy and perfect God who does not hold their sins against them and is about to fight for them. And they're living in fear. See, you can make the big mistake of being overly confident in something that will never give you life. 
Or you can make the supreme mistake of being underconfident in the one who gave you life and who's ready to stand there and give you life over and over and over and over again. And when the people heard uh, uh, of Samuel, he said, sorry, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. In other words, Samuel, please ask God to help us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Just as David sacrificed Uriah so he could get what he wanted. Samuel takes this beautiful little lamb. It's a little ewe lamb, right? It's a little baby lamb. And all of the lambs, according to Deuteronomy, had to be actually pure. In other words, you're not going to have a black and white lamb. It's all going to be spotless, without blemish. And he would take this lamb. And of course, we could never do this. And constitutionally, I could never do it anyway. But he takes this lamb before the assembly of people. He grabs it. He holds it up by the scruff of its neck. He takes a knife and he cuts its throat. He pulls the head back. And all you see is blood flowing down his arms and his, leg, and, his, and his hands. And it is just a powerful, visible image of the guilt of what people have gone through. And then he takes it. He chops it into four different pieces. And he begins to burn it. Because... Samuel is saying in front of all the assembly who has repented before God, their enemies are literally running down the hill at them. And he says, this is what we deserve. We deserve to be torn apart. The difference between the lamb and us is that the lamb was perfect and sinless and had no spots. We've got spots all over us. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of this, we deserve this. We deserve to be torn into pieces and burned on the offering. And as the smoke rises up, everybody begins to trust that God himself will rescue them. And it would be 3,100, hold on, it would be 1,300 years later that Jesus would be born into the world. He would be incarnated into the world. And this perfect, spotless lamb of God, this man who lived a sinless life, who did not deserve to be put on a cross, was placed on the cross for one purpose, and that was simply this, to be torn into pieces and burned up to die a death that would cause him to, to, to literally experience a punishment that he did not deserve because God the Father poured all of our sin and all of our consequences upon Jesus. And just as, he, as, as the lamb didn't deserve it, neither did Jesus, but it was acceptable to the Father. And that one last perfect sacrifice of Jesus didn't apply for one of your sins that you've confessed, but all of your sins that you've confessed. Not one of your circumstances, but all of your circumstances. Not just for yesterday or today, but also for tomorrow. You have been sealed once and for all by the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You are, you are okay. You're okay. But we forget. And it's one of the hardest things to get the gospel deep inside of our hearts because we continue to sin. And every time we sin, it anesthetizes us to the presence of God. The way that this whole thing ends is like this. Verse 12, so Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. 
So let me talk about this. What is this? You hear our songs every once in a while that talk about an Ebenezer, and we'll throw it up there. An Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance, just to define it, because who uses the word Ebenezer? Hey, can you go to Publix and get an Ebenezer? You know, I mean, that's not something we actually say on a regular basis, but here's what he did, okay? So an Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance. Um, it, there's, it's also um, it's a stone of help. It's a stone that shows that God has helped us. So in our lives, and I'm going to encourage you guys to do this, right? Because it doesn't matter where you are right now. Like you could be at the best moments of your life. You need an Ebenezer. You do. And your Ebenezer can be your journal. It can be anything. But it can be a stone of remembrance where you just pop it down and say, hey, this is the season of blessing for me and my husband or me and my family or whatever. This is the time of blessing. Like I can, I can trust and rejoice that God is with us right now and he is for us. And the circumstances around us, he's just pouring out blessing on them. Because when you put a stone of remembrance in your life like that, when bad times come, you can remember that God's been with you. Because it's very easy when you're running in life, and we're all running in life. When you're running in life and you come smack dab into that brick wall to think, there's always a brick wall in my way, and that's not true. It's not true. You've been places of blessing And you need stones of remembrance there, stones of help, things to help you remember in those moments that God is still with you. And if you're at the bottom, I've been at the bottom. If you're at the bottom right now and just life is terrible for you, you need a stone of remembrance to remember that God was with you even in the darkest, worst moments of your life and that he is the God who got you out of this. And so this is what they do. They put a stone of remembrance down so that everyone who walks by it goes, oh, you remember that day at Mizpah? We repented of our sins. And what did God do? The Bible says that as he's sacrificing this poor lamb, they are literally running down the hill towards them. And then all of a sudden what God does is just a huge peal of thunder. And everybody stops. It's not about to rain, but there's thunder all around them. And the Bible says that God gave them confusion. So the Philistines are going like, what's happening right now? This is scary and terrible. And they began to run the other way. And for 50 miles, the Israelites, who gained confidence from God in that moment, followed them, just taking them apart in pieces. And after this, they never, ever entered the land of Israel ever again. In fact, everything that was stolen from the Israelites was given back to them because they repented. So, let's repent. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. Not, Not right now, just in a second. I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you have something that's in your life and you're just like, you know what? Dealing with it for way too long. Could be something that someone did to me a long time ago and I just, I keep going back to Mizpah and I never ever actually repent. I never get through. Like, you know, something terrible that happened to you and you just harden your heart and say, that'll never happen to me. And as a result, it's not the thing that happened to you. It's the hardening of the heart. Or maybe you just have a sin that you're dealing with and you're just like, repetitively, I go back to it over and over and over again and I have no idea how to get rid of it. It's a stronghold. It's a foothold in your soul. But wherever you are, if you're carrying it with you and the past continues to hold you, just stand up right now and I'm going to pray for you. Stand up. Don't be afraid. Stand up right now, okay? All right. You don't, sitting down is not a condemning thing. You just may be in the place right now where you're not ready or this, you may be in the place right now where you're feeling all right. And that's great. But if you stood up right now, here's what we know. We know this is a place where you can publicly stand up and say, I have issues. We know this is publicly a place where you can come and you can say, I'm going to repent of my sins. 
And listen, here's what we're doing. I just want to be super clear on this because I don't want you to be disappointed. We're not fixing it right now. I'm going to pray and ask God to deliver you from that, whatever that is. But if you walk out and you still carry it with you, what we're doing right now is not fixing it. What we're doing right now is posturing our heart towards God to say, I need you. Without you, I'm never going to be able to get rid of this. Let me pray. Father, I do ask right now that there, are, there is bondage in the room, Lord. Lord, there's bondage in my life. Free us, God. Supernaturally free us, God. Without you right now, we confess, God, we have sinned against you by how we've thought, by how we've acted, by how we felt, God. We have not honored your name. And so we all just confess it right here, right now, in our own heads, God. We confess it to you. And so, God, we ask you to pour yourself out for us as we've poured ourselves out for you here today. Father, be faithful to your word, Lord. Be faithful, and, 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 and we trust, God, that Jesus is enough for us. But in this broken world, Lord, he said we would have trouble. So I pray right now in those places where we've given Satan a foothold, we ask, God, that you'd release us, that you'd free us, and that you'd open us to the life that you want us to have, not the broken one we have. Father, for the people in the room right now <laughs> who just had that something happen to them when they were little or just along the way, a husband who walked out, a wife who walked out, something when they were a child, Father, free us from this. God, we want to be your people and we want to spread your name and your glory and your fame all over the city. But sometimes we just get so consumed with ourselves, Lord. We ask God that you just free us from that, free us from the effects of other people's sin as well. Father, we know that we, and we are not asking God to be set free from all sin and all implications of that forever. We're asking God that our hearts would be drawn to you, that we would turn away and turn, to, turn away from our old life and turn towards our new one. We trust you, God, not ourselves. We trust you. So fall upon us. May we know you in the midst of our pain. It's in your name we pray. Amen.